Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, do you have any scoops on Taylor Swift? Eager to break some news on Beyonce? Well, the biggest newspaper chain in America is hiring two reporters to focus exclusively on the two music megastores. Find out why some are less than crazy in love with the idea, but why it might be a good way to fill in some blank space, say others. The collapse of two dams in northeastern Libya following a massive tropical storm earlier this month has now left more than 10,000 people dead. The dams in question had been built in the 1970s but hadn't had proper maintenance in two decades. And that is shining a spotlight on major dams around the world, many of which are reaching their age limit and are also in need of major work. We speak to a Hamilton-based researcher who wrote the definitive report on this issue for the UN back in 2021. The Prime Minister today dropped a bombshell in Parliament accusing the Indian government of involvement in the June murder of a prominent Sikh community leader and separatist in Surrey. Justin Trudeau says he raised the issue with India's Prime Minister Modi while at the G20 in New Delhi earlier this month. We look into the security angle of this explosive story, the impact on Canada's Sikh community and on Canadian-Indian relations. But first, executives from Canada's biggest grocery chains all showed up for a summit struck by the Liberal government in Ottawa today as Parliament Hill returned to session and the government vowed action on affordability issues. But what can the federal government actually do to bring down grocery prices? Perhaps not much at all. We find out. Uh, as I was mentioning, the heads of Canada's big grocery chains were at a summit today called by the Liberals as the government's vowed action on affordability issues. Of course, Parliament returned today, so this was one of the big splashy issues to come out. Industry Minister François-Philippe Champagne says executives from major grocery chains agreed to support the federal government's efforts to stabilize grocery prices. Uh, he met with the executives from Loblaws, Metro, Empire, Walmart, and Costco this morning. So did Finance Minister Christia Freeland ever so briefly. Here's what Champagne had to say. I am pleased to have seen the constructive tone of the discussion over the course of the two hours. And bottom line is that they have agreed uh, to support uh, the government of Canada in our efforts to stabilize food price in Canada. Right. So each company will work with the government to deliver a plan on grocery prices specific to their operations by Thanksgiving, he said. Now, last week, the Prime Minister came out with slightly less friendly-sounding language. Here's what uh, Justin Trudeau had to say about grocers and what he expects of them. If their plan doesn't provide real relief for the middle class and people working hard to join it, then we will take further action and we are not ruling anything out, including tax measures tax measures. What could that possibly mean that wouldn't be passed on to the consumer? Well, well, let's find out. Uh, Rick Barrichello is a professor of food and resource economics at the University of British Columbia. Rick, thanks so much for your time tonight. Good. My pleasure, Ben. Rick, uh, this always looks good. You know, here you have the industry minister, you know, bringing in the, the big CEOs of the grocery chains and they all sit down. And, but, but it feels like if you actually dug into it, what exactly could the federal government do and what could the grocers even do to stabilize prices? Because this isn't just their problem. It's a, it's a big one, I think. Absolutely. This, is, um, uh, this issue of having food price inflation proceeding faster than overall general inflation is um, quite is quite widespread. It's Canada, U.S., EU, U.K., all of them. I'm sure there's others. but um, So it's not unique to Canada. 
But what perhaps has triggered um, some more recent attention is that in the U.S., that gap, um, that gap, this is really, this is, remember, a 2022 problem. Mm-hmm. Um, that gap between food price inflation and uh, general inflation in the U.S., it fell quite dramatically from very similar to Canada, almost identical to, um, and we still have that gap of about four and a half percentage points. In the U.S., it's fallen to like the equivalent of about a half a percentage point. So, um, so it has been widespread, but other countries, the U.S. at least, has had much more success in seeing food price inflation fall back down to the same as general inflation. So, Rick, are you saying that that ultimately here what could happen is they could do this now, it would have absolutely zero impact, but because there's a lag between the U.S. and here, that in six months' time, those grocery prices will start to fall, and then the Liberal government and the grocers can all take credit for it? Um, That's exactly what I would predict, actually, as difficult as these predictions are, and as much as we've been proven wrong in the last year, but there seems to be exactly what you've described, that there's this lag you know, our our um, grocery chains through their supply chains buy quite a lot from the U.S. And um, when we try to explain it, we find that the, the U.S. performance um, with that differential food price inflation is the, is the strongest contributing factor to ours. And if there's these lags like that, then we should start seeing that gap come down. What do you think is behind this? Because, I, you know, obviously we've spoken about this quite a bit on the show, and it's been try- difficult to try and figure out where exactly, uh, because there's so, many, so much politics involved, where exactly the issue is. Because we know grocery prices are up. Obviously, we know profits are up at grocery stores. Uh, so it's easy. You see you have certain parties pointing to, you know, carbon taxes uh, being behind all this. You have other parties pointing to greedy CEOs and corporations. And now, you know, you have this chorus of parties singing about whatever political uh, reason appeals to them. But ultimately, none of it feels like the right answer. I, um, I'm inclined to agree. Um, I think that um, a lot of this is really in the supply chains. Um, you'll probably remember in the pandemic how early on there were so many uh, people laid off, um, especially in the, in the food business, in the restaurant business, and there were other uh, problems with um, with labor and like process meat processing and all this, as you may recall, and 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 once those people left, everybody's had difficulty trying to um, re-engage their workforce. There's work wanted signs in so many food establishments now, and and so that. But the whole supply chain seems to have these um, added costs um, from that, but other things. Um, not so much the raw food materials, the, the, the international prices of food, of the, of the raw food products, um, although they went up really in 2021. And at that time, the reverse thing was observed that, that overall inflation was actually much more than food price inflation. But come 2022, um, I guess with, you know, a, a lot of these other factors, some um, um, working through the system, um, it produced produced the reverse. And and that whole supply chain now seems to be gummed up somewhat. And that's what's generated most of these. I mean, that's otherwise you wouldn't see this across so many countries um, at the same time. Right. Although Canada, I mean, it's been pointed out by the Competition Bureau. You've pointed it out, obviously. Uh, We do lack a certain amount of competition here. And that does have an impact. Sure. 
Um, we, um, you know, there was a big study they, they did recently, the Competition Bureau, that is, that, um, that sort of laments the, um, the fact that we really need more competition in our grocery sector. Um, but this has not been, this is not a recent event. This has been going on um, for, for many years, and, and, um, and it's good out, out of this situation. You may ascribe it all to uh, politics and, mar- and pol- political parties marketing themselves, but if we finally get some attention to having more teeth in our competition regulation and our competition bureau, I think that would be a very welcome outcome. Uh, But we're talking with Rick about whether or not this makes any sense, because ultimately, how much can the grocery stores themselves actually do other than be subsidized and put stuff on? You know, I I, I mean, this is what happened in France. They sort of dictated that certain products would be would be kept at a certain price level. But that that's not really I mean, that doesn't really sound like a free market, does it? Although groceries, uh, we won't talk about all the things that aren't free market at the grocery store. Uh, When we come back a bit more just about some of the issues on the table, like taxes and so on that are being threatened. I don't think these are going to happen, but. What if they did? That's next. Uh, Rick, we had a listener text in to say, why aren't the grocery chains explaining to the government about their big profits? Now, the reason I've been given from the get-go, and I don't know how much you agree with this, is they've been making a lot of money off other stuff, right? So products like makeup, for instance, which have a huge markup on them. So Loblaw, which owns shoppers, are making big money there. And that's sort of the reason they've been giving out. Do you buy that? Um, I've heard those stories, too. I, I, of course, I'm... I don't know um, where they make their money, but I suspect um, they make money on food too. But but the, there are probably some items like that that are higher margin. Right, but but they must be making. I mean, it's no coincidence that we are paying a lot more for food and they're making big profits. I mean, I think that's what the, the average person looks at and goes, "How could you, you know one plus one must equal two here?" The 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 thing that some um, that concerns me about kind of just. Um, Stating it quite so simply is that, they, you know, they their higher their revenues are higher now, and so their profit margins um, are are higher. But they still might be having the same margins. Like they may they may not have raised their margins much, but with with the larger revenue, of course, the absolute dollar amount of their profits is higher. But their but their margins have been healthy for some time, and so the only issue is like I'm not sure how much. Um, the the recent increases in um, grocery prices are due to them like raising their margins. Their margins have been healthy for some time, and so um, it's very welcome to hear about efforts to try and improve competition in the sector. Um, but um, it's not so clear that the um, that their margins have actually increased um, as much as what we've seen in, in the rising prices. And, and remember that. Um, the U.S. Um, there's there's a widely acknowledged to be more competition in the U.S. sector, and and yet un- until about January February they had the same pattern as we had. Right. Yeah, that so, I mean that that's that's no coincidence. If we're going to fact check what one party said, we might as well fact check what the other one is saying. Well, tell me about the carbon tax here, because I mean we live I, we're both in B.C., which has its own carbon tax, obviously, but there's been a lot of a lot of noise made about what impact that's having on food prices. And the more I've looked around, I can't really find an impact, at least not a significant one that would explain what we're seeing, not just here, but also, as you mentioned, everywhere else. Yeah, well, totally. And even if you just look at the impact of the carbon tax, what you want to look at is how much um, energy are, are these, um, how much is the energy bill of the grocery stores relative to their whole operation? 
And then what fraction of that is due to the carbon tax? Or even worse, what, what fraction of, of an increase in the carbon tax? You're multiplying tiny fractions by tini- tiny fractions. I'm sure that there's, the energy bill is not 10% of their costs. So um, if carbon tax has caused it to go up by 20%, that's just a 2% increase altogether. So, you know, the carbon tax, that's, that's a complete red herring here. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like there's been so much politics done with this because it's such an emotive issue for most of us. Food, I mean, we buy it all the time. Yeah. Uh, we yeah. realize that our grocery bags are, are we have less stuff in them and we're paying more for it. There's a lot of people struggling to pay their bills, period. Uh, so, so ultimately, I guess what's going to happen here, we hope, is that these prices will, in fact, stabilize, even though what we witnessed today uh, taking place in Ottawa probably won't be the reason for it. I, I just can't see how grocers themselves can stabilize prices short of taking government money to to do it and that defeats the whole purpose well there's one other step that they can do but uh, it's not that they don't do this already but they might have added impetus impetus now to go to their suppliers and and take it out of their their side Mm. and so they they insist that if they're going to have that make that big purchase from company x that they have to offer a cheaper price Um, and so they might be able to sort of wring some savings out of that that would neither cost um, the federal government money or um, and, and actually might uh, help bring prices down a bit. Right. Are you confident that might uh, that might happen? I guess the, the grocery stores now have an impetus to try to do this, but it feels like perhaps this could have been done six months ago because, as you mentioned, it's trending, at least in the U.S. I don't know what the situation is right now in France where they've also done some stuff with coming down hard on grocers and in the U.K., but in the U.S., you say right now it's trending in such a direction that we might see this the difference between the rate of inflation and the rate of food inflation kind of start to balance out pretty soon. That's right. And if you look at, at when did the U.S. hit their peak inflation uh, overall, and, and then what about in Canada? We were about six months lagged. And if you looked at peak uh, food price inflation, another five or six months lagged there. So it could it could be that we're about due for this, and, and everybody will be able to take credit. <laughs> well, well, Rick, Rick, wouldn't that be? I mean, in politics, that's called a genius idea, right? Uh, Rick Barcala, thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. Over the past number of weeks, Canadian security agencies have been actively pursuing credible allegations of a potential link between agents of the government of India and the killing of a Canadian citizen, Hardeep Singh Nijar. The Prime Minister got up today in Parliament and said that. If you dissect what that means, and Hardeep Singh Nijar was shot and killed in Surrey uh, back in June. He was a prominent Sikh activist and separatist uh, wanted by the Indian government. Uh, this would be an assassination, at least links to an assassination by a foreign government on our territory. And that is, of course, a very very big deal. According to the Prime Minister, Canadian national security authorities have obtained, quote, credible intelligence suggesting, quote, agents of the government of India were behind the murder of Nijar, again, a prominent Sikh leader in BC in June. Uh, Trudeau said he also raised this issue with Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi at the G20 summit in New Delhi earlier this month. You'll remember how frosty a reception Trudeau and the Canadian delegation was given there. Um, 45-year-old Nijar, if you don't remember the story, was president of the Guru Nanak Sikh Gurdwara. He was shot dead in the parking lot of the temple in Surrey after evening prayers on June the 18th. Two men 
fled in a car. That car was then found burned. I, there have been no arrests. Uh, his death sent shockwaves through the Vancouver and Canadian Sikh communities with thousands attending his funeral later that week. He had been designated a terrorist by New Delhi and part of a separatist movement seeking an autonomous state for adherence of Sikhism or uh, Khalistan, as it's known. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, who is Sikh, was stunned by the announcement uh, despite having heard these claims and he delivered an emotional speech in the House of Commons today. Governments around the world are trying to silence you. The Indian government and the Modi government specifically is attempting to silence you. But truth cannot be silenced. Justice cannot and will not be silenced. In a rare show of unity across the floor today, Conservative leader Pierre Poliev is standing with the Liberal government in condemning this. He is urging India to be transparent. If these allegations are true, they represent an outrageous affront to Canada's sovereignty. Our citizens must be safe from extrajudicial killings of all kinds, most of all from foreign governments. That was opposition leader Pierre Polyev. Of course, the Indian government denies all responsibility for this and says that Ottawa's investigation has been misled by accusations from Canadian Sikhs involved in the Khalistan separatist movement. Uh, and of course, this has all had an impact on Canada-India uh, relations already. And uh, they've cut off trade talks, the two countries. Helping us out with this, because this is a very big deal, is Dan Stanton. He's Director of National Security at the University of Ottawa's Professional Development Institute, a former intelligence officer with CSIS. He's been on the show before. Dan, thanks so much. Oh, thank, thank you very much, Ben, for having me on. This one, uh, I mean, it's hard to overstate exactly the importance of what the Prime Minister got up and said today. I mean, this is one of the, this is the most populous, one of the more powerful rising countries in the world, one with which Canada's had fairly good relations for a long time. We're partners in the Commonwealth. Uh, and today, the Prime Minister got up to say that uh, our intelligence authorities believe, officials believe that the Indian government may have been behind a targeted assassination on Canadian soil of a Canadian citizen. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is unquestionably one of the most egregious uh, activities, state-driven activities in Canadian soil you've seen. 30, 32 years I worked security intelligence, counterterrorism, counterintelligence, foreign interference. I have never even seen or heard of anything like this. Foreign state, a superpower, albeit autocratic, but considered ally in a way, trading partner with, with Canada, and... Um, something like this happens that's been tied right back to New Delhi. The, 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 uh, the line or the breadcrumbs, as you will, goes right back to their intelligence service. I've never seen anything like it. Early on, there were reports, uh, Kim Boland specifically, who's covered these issues for a very long time, because these issues have a long history in this country, if one thinks back yeah. to the Air India bombing, um, that in fact that uh, Mr. Nijar had been warned by CSIS beforehand that he may be under threat. So it looks like intelligence officials had a pretty good beat on this early on. Well, clearly, I mean, the government had some indicators. I mean, I, I seriously doubt they would have had solid indicators that he was going to be killed and they're going to stand there and let it happen. So we don't know the, the, the quality of, of those warnings or those intelligence indicators, whether they were coming from a, another investigation, whether it was chatter, but it was sufficient um, of concern to, to talk to Mr. Nizhar about it. And I think there were some other uh, Sikhs in the community as well that were, were issued with warning. So the government was getting something 
that someone actually was was you know in a position I guess to injure them or harm them. Um, so you know this threat may actually be a little bigger, a little more comprehensive than what we're what we're hearing right now. Maybe a little wider than that, not to sound alarmist. Uh, and we may we may be getting more information about it. I, I would imagine that Canadian security has contacts with Indian security and that they talk to each other. I mean, given the concern over Sikh separatism in this in this country, at least the concern that India has raised over the years and our repeated explanations to India that, listen, you know, there's within a democratic framework, people are allowed to speak freely. Uh, so present evidence that there's some sort of criminal wrongdoing here and we'll help you. If not, we can't. Uh, but they must there must be communication between these agencies. Uh, what must have been going on then as this was unfolding? There, there, there is communication. The problem is, for the last number of years, um, India takes what, what is we would consider dissent, you know, in terms of religious minorities expressing dissent in India. They take that as a threat to their national security. So when they say, well, we have issues with these people over in Canada, uh, there is no real credible intelligence. There is nothing there. There's been nothing really to suggest that Mr. Nijar is a terrorist or anything like that. There's no credible information on that. But the Indian government propagandizes that. They propagandize and politicize their national security such that uh, some of their, their, I guess you could say, concerns aren't taken seriously because today they just aren't concerns. They're, they're, how India views things is different. They view, talk about Khalistan, they do deal with religious minorities, Muslim minorities, all sorts of groups as threats to the integrity of the Indian state. They see it as a national security threat, which it isn't. It isn't in Canada. It isn't in the diaspora communities. And so, so there can be communication back and forth, but it's usually, you know, the Canadian side saying, well, you have to give us something solid if you think this person's a terrorist. And the Indians usually don't have anything. I was interested in something that the Prime Minister said today in that statement, saying that they've been working closely and coordinating with Canada's allies on the case. And that would lead one to believe that they've been speaking with other countries where there have been, I mean, Britain comes to mind immediately because there was a death of a prominent Sikh leader there not that long ago. Uh, That uh, What would you read into that statement? Yeah, yeah. This is where you sort of call pull ranks. I mean, there's various levels of cooperation and, and trust. Trust is the key thing with other services and other agencies. They're not necessarily allies. But, you know, if this is all true, and, you know, this is tied to the RAW, which is their, their civilian foreign intelligence agency, then, you know, India is approaching what we would call pariah status. In other words, this is the type of thing that Iran would do. This is the type of thing that certain other countries won't get into them all on your show that would, we would expect from. But we wouldn't expect from India. So other countries and other countries' security and intelligence services are going to be watching this really closely. And they probably have been collaborating and sharing a lot. Uh, over the last few months, um, because it, it, it does mean they will have to second guess their relationship, their cooperation on terrorism, their sharing of intelligence, if India is going to pull this stuff, this type of activity. Right. And, and I mean, the reaction, I think, think we're going to see, I mean, it, it feels like we've been hit by something, by quite the wave, and we've yet to see what the yeah. fallout is the, of this is going to be. But even just in intelligence circles, the fallout of this would be, it would just be massive. If one thinks of what happened in Russia, well, to, in, in the UK with, with 
you know, extra uh, judicial assassinations of Russian dissidents there. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, there is a there is a playbook that's followed here normally, and it looks like it. But India is kind of a different kind of country. It's not a pariah, uh, so it looks like this is this could have some some pretty incredible ramifications in, in many different ways. Not least of which would be on the security and intelligence front. It is. It could. Be, I mean, it could be. I mean, India could deal this. They could throw raw under the bus. Someone could say it's just rogue elements. You know, that sometimes comes up or, you know, it may be unavoidable. This could be the new India. I mean, we do know with the Modi government it is increasingly autocratic and they've been clamping down on dissidents. And there have been some people killed in other countries and harassed and things like that. It could be. It could be that the raw is prostituting itself to uh to what delhi wants i I mean i don't know but clearly what the government has done is they have said reliable intelligence and they've tied this down to the state of india and they've shown it they demonstrated by kicking out the head of raw in canada which which doesn't necessarily mean he's implicated in it but it certainly means his services in some capacity and that means new delhi is involved yeah. Tell me, because that was I mean, later in the day, uh, the foreign affairs minister, Melanie Jolie, came out. It wasn't clear what the what the immediate action by Canada would be. And they did uh, they did kick out a diplomat, as you mentioned, the head of the intelligence services in Canada, at least um, that that would seem to be a pretty targeted message to Delhi uh, yeah. with, with it, that particular individual being booted. It, it's a strong message. And usually when people when spies are kicked out, they're kind of treated well when they get back home because they did their job. But we don't know how this is playing out in India. I suspect somebody's in the doghouse on this one because uh, this is costing them. I'm sure their Ministry of Foreign Affairs is not impressed. I'm sure Mr. Modi is not impressed. So I'm, internally, there will be a huge fallout over this. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll have to see. I mean, I, I, there could be extradition issues on, uh, on who was involved. Uh, it, could, it could be long protracted for Canada to get access to maybe, maybe one of the killers is, is back in India. But clearly the government needs to get some cooperation from India on this other than denials. And so I think that's why they've ratcheted it up, made the announcement they did today. I understand that it's going to be raised at the UN later this week as well. So I, I think Canada's been in a position where relying on the good faith of another state isn't going to cut it. And so they've had to go this route, which is just to come publicize it and uh, pressure India to, uh, to cooperate in an investigation. Uh, Dan, take me behind the scenes tonight, because, of course, this very much puts Canadian intelligence in the spotlight as well. I mean, the government has, has yeah. put them out there as the source of this information. What do you think is going on behind the scenes tonight? Well, I, I, I think, I, I mean, I'm not sure about the timing of the prime minister's relief. I'm not sure what drove that, why they're doing it now. We have to remember there's an ongoing criminal investigation. The RCMP would be collecting evidence to stand up in court. And there's always issues about intelligence and evidence and that sort of thing. What CSIS is doing is, in a way, separate from that. They would perhaps have an ongoing collection operation been going on, perhaps against the law, perhaps on foreign interference, where some of this would come up on it and, and would, would use what comes up on there to demonstrate that this is coming in you know, a, a directed killing from the government of India. So there's going to be probably a lot of intelligence equities here that could be third party, that could be from another agency, that could be sensitive human source issues. This is going to become, this isn't going to happen in a week, whether there's a criminal prosecution, it's all going to end. 
Um, so it's going to be a complicated one. And as I said, there could be extradition issues as well. There could be somebody in India. They, you know, the RCMP is going to have to go and interview as part of the criminal investigation. But whatever it is, it does require cooperation from the state of India, which is going to be hard to get if they're the ones behind it. So this is, this is going to be around for a while before it's all resolved, at least legally. It's interesting, too. I mean, uh, having covered the Air India inquiry back uh, many years ago in Ottawa, how much fire CSIS and the RCMP came under for their misunderstanding of what was happening in India, what these issues were all about. And I I sense through this, perhaps, that our intelligence services do have a slightly better understanding of what's going on in other parts of the world that may have an impact here. Oh, absolutely. They do. I mean, they follow it. So they, they see what's going on in India and it's, it doesn't resemble at all what was going on in the early 80s and that. And then they all do, they do look at India as another state. And then there's various levels of cooperation and reliability in the information they get in that. So they're much, much more sophisticated in terms of the collection and analysis than we would have seen, you know, 30, 35 years ago. Or, or something like that. So I, I think there, there's been an ongoing investigation of, for quite some time on obviously the raw and that um, as this murder took place, uh, the government was very quickly able to figure out who was behind it. So it's not as though someone just started their investigation three months ago. Uh, I think the intelligence side, it's been going on for quite a while. So there's going to be a lot of sensitive intelligence equities here too that they're going to want to keep out of a, about a criminal investigation. But it's all doable. I mean, it, uh, you know, we, we have to have trust in our institutions, and that, that includes the RCMP as well as CSIS and Justice Department, that we're going to end up having a good criminal investigation. And those that are, are responsible are going to be held to account. And that includes Research, a, a foreign yeah. country. Uh, research and analysis wing, when, when Dan mentions raw, it's the research and analysis wing, the Indian Foreign Intelligence Agency. Um, Dan, so, so what now? Because it feels like this is a huge story. Uh, this was a huge yeah. announcement. As you mentioned, it was unprecedented. Uh, and it feels like we're going to start to watch the fallout. So what are you looking for in the next 24 hours? Oh, <laughs> God knows. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, uh, I think what we're probably going to be looking for, Ren, is is the Indian government reaction to it. Right. I mean, at some point, there, there has to be a lot going on internally there. And now we have the focus of world attention, especially when this gets to the United Nations. So they realize the implication of this. They can't just dismiss this as Canada or Justin. I mean, it, this, is, this is something that other countries are, are deeply concerned about. Other countries with, you know, South Asian and Sikh diaspora communities, and, and, and other countries where, you know, we, we saw India a certain way and maybe we're not seeing them that way anymore. And there's a bit of a reality there. Maybe it'll have some repercussions on trade and other things. So, that's yeah, that's what I would watch for is how is India going to react to this? And are they going to act like an adult and, yeah. uh, and admit to it? Yeah, it's, it's tomorrow in India. So I'm assuming we're going to start to see a reaction pretty soon. Dan, thank you so much as always. Oh, my pleasure. Let's get back to the story we were talking about in the last half hour with Dan Stanton, the former uh, CSIS intelligence officer. Uh, Today, Prime Minister Trudeau in the House of Commons said that Canadian security agencies are pursuing credible allegations that agents of the government of India are responsible for the killing of a Canadian citizen. Trudeau says the murder of BC Sikh leader Hardeep Singh Nijar goes against Canada's rule of law. Any involvement of a foreign government in the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil is an unacceptable violation 
of our sovereignty. It is contrary to the fundamental rules by which free, open and democratic societies conduct themselves. The Prime Minister today in the House of Commons. It is a huge, you know, extrajudicial killings, it goes without saying, if a foreign state commits murder on your territory of one of your citizens. Uh, there is no there is no greater breach. Uh, 45-year-old Nijar, if you don't remember this story, was president of the Guru Nanak Sikh Gurdwara. He was killed, shot and killed in the parking lot of the temple in Surrey after evening prayers back on June the 18th. He had been designated a terrorist by New Delhi and part of a separatist movement here seeking an autonomy state for uh, Khalistan, uh, the adherence of Sikhism. Um, but again, in this country, he had broken no laws. Uh, the Indian government has just come out and re- responded to this, according to posts on social media, saying, we have seen and reject the statement of the Canadian Prime Minister in their parliament. Allegations of government of India's involvement in any act of violence in Canada are absurd and motivated. They don't elaborate on that. Similar allegations were made by the Canadian PM to our Prime Minister and were completely Rejected. Well, when I was stationed in Beijing uh, with Global, my next guest and a name you'll recognize, Jazz Joe Hall, was stationed as the South Asia correspondent in New Delhi. He was, of course, a longtime Global National correspondent. He now is uh, the host of the Jazz Joe Hall Show, which you can hear weekday afternoons on 980 CKNW in Vancouver. And he joins me now. Jazz, thank you so much on this one. Yeah, good evening, Ben. Good to hear your voice. Yeah, you too. I mean, I thought of you when this came up because, A, your, your knowledge of, of, of the diaspora in, in Canada and the time you spent in New Delhi as well. You must have a real a real view on this that would be interesting to hear. Just your reaction to the announcement, though, because for the Prime Minister to get up in Parliament and say that India had been involved in the murder of a Canadian citizen on Canadian territory feels like mm-hmm. something that I had never heard before. I mean, that's 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 a major statement. Yeah, it is a, a, a very uh, important statement. You know, I was talking to friends and colleagues over the last month or so, uh, and I said if, if it was the first time I felt Indian government could have been involved in something like this. Uh, and this is the first acknowledgement of our own government through intelligence sources that something like this uh, is, has happened. Now, you have to remind yourself this independent Sikh state uh, and Indian government's uh, frustration with the way Canadian authorities have responded to independence movement, uh, much of it in the diaspora community in Toronto and in Vancouver, has been going on since the, the 70s and early 80s and sort of the year India bombing as well. Uh, there has been a complete frustration on the part of the Indian government as well that we as Canadians, uh, as a country, have allowed these di- these separatist movements to remain and to flourish. And they've said that they have you know, been supporting that very independent movement. Uh, the difference today uh, is that the Indian government uh, fully knows that it is a nation that is on the cusp of growing even bigger than what it is today. You have an economy on the cusp of uh, becoming the third largest uh, economy in the world. They will not allow any separatist movement, whether it be in Punjab or another part of India, to get in the way of that growth. Uh, and unlike the 1980s with the Air India bombing, where they had warned the Canadian government, I would not be surprised, while they denied, I would not be surprised uh, that they were involved uh, in this particular case with Mr. Niger, simply because they do not have faith in the ability of Canada to respond in a meaningful way to deal with this separatist movement that does provide financing, that does provide support to this separatist movement in, 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 uh, in Punjab. Tell me a bit about Nijar, because people who don't know this story very well, I mean, he was, uh, there has been a, 
after n- not being a very big topic for a while, the idea of an independent state in, in Khalistan, mm-hmm. it has become an issue again. And I've read about it. Mean, you, you'll know this. Uh, you follow this closely than I, closer than I do in it being in Vancouver itself. Uh, but the idea that you know the memories of the 80s have faded and there is a new push now for this idea of a, of a separate six state. Um, but he, who was who was the victim here? Well, he was uh, uh, very much involved with uh, one of the major Sikh temples here uh, in the Vancouver suburb of Surrey, uh, a, a really large temple, influential. Um, and like many Sikhs, they feel emboldened that the Indian government uh, has not have not tried to treat the Sikhs well, uh, whether it has been over the last 20 or 30 years or even in and around independence. There is a frustration at its core for many Sikhs that since independence, the state of Punjab has not been treated well, has been taken advantage of, uh, not in regards to just not only uh, exercising power, but the access to their own resources, uh, water uh, uh, in uh, states like Punjab being diverted to other states. They feel the resources, they have not, the resources have been controlled by New Delhi. And so there is legitimacy in their comments. There is legitimacy as a small minority within India uh, that they feel that their needs have not been responded to by the federal government in a meaningful way. The challenge has been that the diaspora community here has been part of that push. But in Punjab itself, there isn't that majority push for Khalistan. In fact, Punjab, when you look at India's growth over the last 30 years, has been really driven by the southern states. Punjab itself is a, is, a pro, is a state that has predominantly stood still as India has moved forward. Its industrial base has been uh, decimated by the rise of China. It is dealing with significant environmental issues. And then when you say, well, do people believe in a future in Punjab? One only has to look at its young people. Go to a suburban uh, shopping mall in Toronto or Calgary and Vancouver. 40% of all international students coming to British Columbia today are coming from India, and the vast majority of them from Punjab. Toronto is no different. Calgary as well. So it is, it is a frustration that as a state, it has not kept up with the growth and the, and the, and, and the uh, sort of the, the, the economic growth that India has been really fortunate to be a part of, number one. There is historical grievances as well. But Indian government's core issue here has been that this is predominantly fueled by Sikhs in Toronto, in Vancouver, in South Hall of London, in some places in the U.S., in Australia. Khalistan lives in the Western world in the minds of Indian politicians. It doesn't live in Punjab. So that's the point. These individuals have not broken the law by protesting or pushing and wanting an independent state. That's part of a free and open society in Canada. What you're seeing now is very, uh, very, uh, you know, at the end of the day, a robust foreign policy from Delhi where they do not have patience for any of this anymore, as they perhaps would have, let's say, in the early 80s when they warned the, were the Canadian government of a plot to bomb Air India, which ended up happening. That patience yeah. is yeah. now lost. It's interesting, though, because India, as you mentioned, is at the cusp of something large. Uh, it is, you know, they've just, the, the lunar lander was a big one. The G20 was a big one. Economic growth has been big. It's the most populous country on the planet now. I mean, it, this looks in many ways like, it, it, you know, the 21st century could be India's century. That being said, 
Um, there are diplomatic niceties that allies treat each other with. And this could be a mm -hmm. very, I mean, being rogue stated, uh, ally North Korea, you know, Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia, Russia, is not a place that I think India necessarily wants to be on an issue like this. And especially considering, as you mentioned, these are very much sort of diaspora issues. They're not very much internal issues within India, at least not a threat to the, to the security or to the power of the Indian state. Yeah, and I think it goes back to my core issue is they are not wanting in any way any of these separatist movements to uh, take hold in India again, simply because of that fact that it is on the cusp. They will not jeopardize that, particularly under Mr. Ro Modi's very robust foreign policy. He mm -hmm. travels the world. Uh, he is all about invest in India. Uh, we are growing. It is a place where you can do business. Look at the physical infrastructure that we are building from roads to bridges to highways to ports. That's the conversation he wants in and around India and to modernize India. He is not interested in listening to comfortable westernized Sikhs telling him what should be happening in that country. So there is a dramatic pushback uh, in that sense. Having said that, we are in a difficult position as well. We would love to sign a free trade agreement with India. But mm -hmm. we must also remind ourselves that India itself is a transactional partner. And right now, the prime minister, the opposition leader, Mr. Singh with the NDP, we also at the point have to ask ourselves, what is our relationship with India? We have, uh, you know, a, sort of a building conversation around where do we, where do we and how do we uh, interact with China? We need to do the same thing with the other emerging superpower as well. It's all well and good to say we have a diaspora population here. But India is going to decide its foreign policy based on the needs of its citizens. And that isn't always going to fit with our needs or our views and perceptions of India. If they uh, may be denying what they deny, at the end of the day, our intelligence sources say this is what we believe. There's a high probability of this happening with their involvement. So do we move forward with a free trade agreement? Do we still discuss and, and build uh, and tighten security uh, relationships with them in regards to a counterbalance with China? So this is the deeper fundamental conversations we need to have. But it is a wake-up call for Canada and Canadians as well. The world isn't as safe as we always thought it was going to be. And countries and with people we believe as our allies will do things sometimes that fundamentally wake us up and go, why are they doing this on our soil with our citizens? Yes, just short term within within you know it feels like the fallout of this has just begun. Um, mm -hmm. What I mean, where do you see this going within Canada itself? Because this is going to create. We've already seen the backlash online. Um, this this could have a lot of this. I mean, I watched this story travel the world in a matter of seconds today. There was huge interest in Britain about what's going on here. I mean, this is a big big deal, and this could have really big implications for our relationship with India, as you were just mentioning. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, immediately, uh, I think we can expect, obviously, protests out of outside consulate offices in Vancouver and Toronto and, and the High Commission in, in, in Ottawa. Um, I think, to a certain degree, many Sikhs who are supportive of that independent Sikh state of Khalistan uh, will also remind Canadians that we told you so. We've been saying this for a very long time, that we've been you know, tainted as, as extremists, uh, while the Indian government, uh, has been plotting against us. And this is a reminder that we were telling the truth. Um, but beyond that for a moment, uh, and Mr. Trudeau's comments today, Mr. Polyev's, Mr. Singh's, the question is what leverage do you have uh, over India uh, in any way uh, to uh, prevent this from happening again uh, or to, for them to admit that they were part and parcel part of the, the, uh, the organization behind this? Uh, the reality is you can't. 
there's not a lot that can be done beyond kicking out uh, the the diplomat the diplomats uh, if if they wish. I know there's been one that's already been booted out, and there may be others moving forward. I think one of the things that we can expect from this is in the past, many have wondered why would you include India in our conversations about foreign interference? It should be focused mm-hmm. on, you know, China and Russia and Iran. I think you can guarantee India's involvement, uh, or at least if there is an inquiry, which we expect, uh, India would be part of that broader conversation uh, as well. Uh, but, but I think, you know, Mr. Modi and his supporters uh, in India have a very robust uh, social media voice supporters mm-hmm. in India, and there's a more robust Indian media generally that, that is flexing its muscle in regards to India. And they also are, are uh, tired of diaspora Indians telling Indians what they should be doing in India. Uh, and you see a lot of this playing out on Twitter and many other social media. Expect that to continue, absolutely. Uh, but I think over the long term, going back to my original comments, uh, we have to ask ourselves, what is our relationship with India? This shows an India that has little patience for being challenged. And so where do we as Canadians sit? Do we continue to allow our citizens to do what they're doing? I mean, they are not breaking any laws. Uh, or do we get involved in a deeper way in regards to security, working with India, working with other partners uh, in the Indo-Pacific? That's the broader conversation. We have not yet figured out a clear strategy with dealing with India and its needs. You've got to remind yourself, they're not working and living in a great neighborhood. You've got Pakistan on one side with historical grievances. Yeah, Afghanistan. China on the other side. So you've got to sometimes put your, you know, put yourself in somebody else's, uh, th- their perspective. The world's going to be a little different compared to, you know, Canada sits in a quiet geopolitical cul-de-sac here in North America. So you do have to, to a certain degree, understand where India is coming from. But we cannot allow something like this to occur again, not for our sovereignty, not for our independence, and certainly not for public public uh, public perception and, and just public support. You can't have nations doing this. So no. what is our response, well, and that's going to be robust? I don't know yet, but at this point, certainly pushing back on India is the right thing to do. Jazz, as always, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Let's talk of this has been a really big story, and it's one that's spread outside of Calgary now. So last week, we spoke to health officials. We spoke to some parents about this E. coli outbreak at several Calgary daycares. The impact of that continues to be felt. Health officials today say six additional E. coli infections were confirmed over the weekend. Secondary cases have also risen, prompting a partial closure of six more daycares. Uh, Officials say the outbreak involving numerous daycares served by the a central kitchen has peaked, but today the uh, Alberta's premier was out talking about it again. Apparently, the secondary cases are because kids who couldn't go to their original daycares because they were closed found themselves in other daycares, and then the E. coli was spreading there. Here's what the premier had to say. The secondary closures are related to having children interacting with each other. So all of them, as I understand it, have had some close contact with the child who was affected. Or it was a child who was at one of the original facilities who got moved into uh, one of the new facilities. 
the Premier is asking parents to keep their kids home if they're sick. Obviously, that uh, kind of goes without saying, but and get permission uh, before to have them return, trying to curb this, of course. It, this all comes as the province's opposition critic for childcare uh, with the NDP and kids and family services. Oh, sorry, that's the Minister of Childcare and Children and Family Services, rather, is calling for the Smith government to launch a full public inquiry into this outbreak, a way to figure out what went so horribly wrong in this case, why it took so long to inform parents. We've heard directly from parents about that, um, that this was an, indeed a serious outbreak taking place, but also to repair something that is fundamental when it comes to childcare, fundamental that was broken here. I think this is where the Alberta government sometimes has fallen, has not understood what's going on here. This isn't about finding out exactly how, how this happened. This is about trust. We trust people to care for our children. In fact, there is no greater trust you can put in another human being in some ways than to take care of your child, to feed them properly, to care for them properly within a daycare setting, right? Uh, to, and so that trust needs to be repaired. And you have to make sure, of course, that this doesn't happen again. And that's not just in Alberta. This is something that is now spread to parents across the country, whether it be uh, in Toronto or out here in Vancouver. There are, you know, a lot of people have been watching this story thinking, could it happen here? And how do you make sure that it doesn't? Martha Friendly is Executive Director of the Children Resource and Research Unit, and she joins me now. Martha, thank you. Oh, thank you very much. This has been such a, I mean, in so many ways, this has been such a, and I hate the word impactful, but it's been a really impactful story because I think for parents across the country, they're looking at this and going, well, how could this happen? I think anyone who doesn't have a child in, in a daycare center is looking at this and saying, well, how could this happen? This is one of the biggest E. coli outbreaks on, that we've seen ever, and it's happening in a daycare yeah. setting. What have you? What was the first reaction that you had to sort of watching this unfold? Well, that was actually my reaction. How could this happen? And I've done work on both infectious diseases in childcare. This is quite some time ago, and I've also done looked into food in childcare, and that was my reaction also. How could this happen? Um, and I, I actually think it's an anomaly. But at the same time, I think it really is an issue that should prod um, as we're develop, you know, developing this national child care program. It really should develop some consideration of how to, how does this work in child care? I mean, that's on the one hand. And also, there really does need to be a public inquiry of how this happened in particular, I think. So that, that would be my reaction. Tell me a bit about the anomaly side of this, because I think it's normal for any anyone to look at this and think, wow, could it happen here? You know, my, we have you know, maybe some of the circumstances surrounding what happened in Calgary are similar to where my children go to daycare. Uh, why do you think it's an anomaly? Well, actually, because I never the, there's always been interest and there is still research, but there, we have very little research in Canada. But, in a, you know, in some other countries in the issue, of, you know, the issue of the transmission of infectious illnesses in childcare because it's young children, you know, children are prone to get things, they're prone to pass things on. So there's a lot of work that's been done on this, particularly in the U.S., I think. Um, and I, I actually came across, I haven't looked at this for years, but so why I say it's an anomaly is because it, 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 it doesn't come up that a big cause of infectious illness is through uh, food. You know, mm -hmm. like that it's foodborne. It's mostly children pass it back and forth to each other, which has a role in this, but it's not the main cause. And I looked around to see if there were any instances where there had been a big outbreak of E. coli or any, you know, any of those kinds of, um, you know, you know, gastrointestinal things in childcare. And I never, I didn't find one anywhere. I mean, 
probably I could do it more thoroughly, but I didn't find one anywhere. Never seen one in Canada. And I don't I don't know if anybody has recorded, you know, any case, cases of E. coli in Canada, because I don't know that I would offhand have a way of knowing unless it was in the, in the news. Right. I mean, I think that's why there's been so much attention paid to this and why parents there have been so concerned, because this is an anomaly. This is something that is completely, and completely out of the ordinary. So where, I mean, knowing, knowing childcare the way you do, where then do you start to look for where, for what this means outside of, I mean, I know in Calgary, they're going to try to figure out exactly what happened, but broadly as parents across the country kind of look at this and think, wow, wow, what went wrong here? Where would you, what are well, some of the flags I mean, that you see? Here's here's the way I, I, I would think about this, uh, you know, in, in sort of thinking about it and talking to people about it in the last two weeks. I think it falls into three categories that, of interest. One of them is the whole issue of food handling in childcare, you know, which has regulations or, you know, more or less regulations and is done more or less well. But food is served in childcare centers one way or the other. One article that I read said that of children actually who are in full day childcare get between two thirds and three quarters of their food in the ch- while they're in childcare, which mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense given the time that they're there. So that's one thing. Everything from did public health in Calgary really do this badly to what should be in place in terms of food handling, um, you know, regulations and legislation you know, which does exist, but there's a lot of things that fall outside of it. That's one category. I think the second category just has to do with food in general and childcare. And I think it's really important. I mean, since children are there for a full day, um, nutrition is very important. How children learn, you know, what kinds of foods they learn about, you know, how do you represent diversity in food? Um, There's a whole wealth of food issues. But the third area would be who's providing the child care and 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 the food and are they are they competent to do it? You know, are there you know, are there reasons that they don't do it well? Who mm-hmm. would do it well? You know, who should be doing it? I, I think that the anything that I've seen on it would fall into those three categories. And only one of them is kind of this emergency kind of category. It's like, is anybody looking to see how, you know, what comes in on the food? I mean, that's you know, that's the critical issue. But it's also the other things are really important issues because we're growing a childcare system. And I would say that ch- food policy in childcare is quite thin. It's, it's actually pretty weak in, in terms of anything like nutrition, who provides it. So only five provinces, four provinces and one territory actually are required to provide the meal. You know, the, the, like it comes from the center. Right. And, and so that's a really big difference between that and the situations where parents are sending it in lunch boxes, right? There's a whole lot of differences between in, between those two things. And then you have, which is fairly common in some provinces, but not in others, where they're not required to provide it. They're providing the food, like in this particular case in Calgary, they get it through a caterer and um, they charge the parents extra for it. Right. And so then you run into this question of shouldn't it be an, you know, shouldn't it be part of the childcare program? When I say it's about food, food is part of a childcare program. So I really, you know, do think that if you sort of look at across the different issues, they really all fall into one of those three categories and they're linked and they're, they're all important. Martha, you, you've talked about it. Tell me about how a public inquiry, this would have to happen in Alberta, I presume, but how would a public inquiry 
help here? Because you're, you're talking about this also informing a much broader daycare system about some of the potential pitfalls of perhaps, you know, that that we've seen, we don't know exactly what's gone wrong, but some of the pitfalls that we've seen in Calgary. I think it would be really helpful for, for two main reasons. One of them is it would really uncover really what went wrong, you know, like really what went wrong. It's not that there are no rules about food handling or how caterers handle food in Alberta. So there's what actually went wrong. And I think that it would actually deal with that. But I think the second thing that it would do would be it would actually look to see if there are sufficient rules about food handling in childcare, because it's my impression that there are that that this is something that should be reviewed across the country. And I think looking at it in Alberta, which is kind of the middle of the road province on food, because it doesn't require food to be provided by the center, but there are a lot of centers that do provide it, where Mm -hmm. some provinces where it's not provided, it's almost always brought in by parents. So I think it would be really useful to look at Alberta to see what are the regulations you know, I can tell you what they are in Ontario because I know that well, and they're fairly well in place in Ontario. Um, and I'll, I'll just point out one difference why I think this would be useful. For example, in Ontario, if you you have a childcare kitchen in your childcare center, you need to have three sinks at, or an industrial dishwasher. And one of the things I read in one of the public health reports in Alberta was about the sink and having things in the same sink that shouldn't be in the same sink. So that's what I'm saying is two things. What went really what went wrong and what additional kinds of of um, re- recommendations would, would you make about additional kinds of um, uh, monitoring of food handling and childcare? Just on that side, I think it would be very valuable, not what only the- for Albert, but generally. One of the things we've heard, of course, is that there are a couple of different things going on. Trust being a big one. Uh, parents talk to us about how difficult it is to find a childcare space, period, let alone whether you have the luxury of trusting the childcare uh, facility that you're sending your kid to. And in this case, I think what's been eroded here a little bit is that trust, because there's sort of a, oh, yeah. it, it's a bit, it's a bit of a, not, I wouldn't call it a miss, like a, it's, it's a confidence that's given to childcare providers. And what we've seen in Calgary is that it can erode pretty quickly if something like this goes wrong, because people are, people are that upset about what's happened and then they point out how difficult it is to actually find a replacement you can't just take your kid out of daycare if you don't like the daycare they're in because finding an alternative can be very difficult so it feels like there could be a lot of lessons learned here as on that front as well well i think this is a is really important about about how parents do need to trust childcare. i mean they take babies to childcare. i mean i took babies to child care mm-hmm. so the the thing is it's from my view, having worked on this for so many years, it's not merely whether they trust the particular person, because that isn't really, it's not a policy issue. The issue is, is the is there public policy that protects their child, even if the person does, you know, like, parents should actually have confidence in it as an institution. This is a regulated and publicly funded, these centers are publicly funded and regulated by the province of Alberta, presumably, and they're they're inspected and all that sort of thing. So there's trust in that. And within that, the operator, for better or worse, operates. And I think the the, uh, the, the issue of public oversight of childcare, it's one of the things that I, as a 
as a policy person and an advocate, always say, this is why regulation is important in childcare. It's because there's public oversight. It's not just that you're just, you like this person and you trust them, which is important, but it's not all there is to it. The they have to feel confident in the public oversight. And in this case, it's really obvious that the public oversight betrayed the trust. So I think I think you're absolutely right. And I really feel for the parents. I just want to point out one other thing. The other piece that happened that was sort of like the other shoe falling was children from those centers that were closed. The parents looked for other places. They found places in other child, other childcare centers that were operating. They took their children there. And then there was a second, you know, like a it's when you have an earthquake and there's a, what do you call that? An aftershock, an aftershock. The aftershock. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the aftershock so on Friday night, late Friday night, they closed, I think, six other centers. And it sounded, as far as I could tell, but that they were children coming from those centers and likely passing it on to the children in these centers that had not been contaminated. Because that's why public health has a role. Does pub Did public health instruct people that they should, um, if their children were in those centers, they have to test them before they, you know, do they make sure that before they entered another childcare center, they weren't, uh, did, they did not have E. coli, they didn't test positive for E. coli, because it's, E. coli is transmitted both through, um, you know, uh, feces, but it's yes. also transmitted person to person. And yes, that's been the problem here, of course. Yeah, so, I, so, I, I guess yeah, what this boils down to, if I hear you correctly, is that, I mean, regulation, we talk, we hear lots of talk about gatekeepers these days, yeah. and over-regulation and red tape. and But there are there are places where I think most parents would like to see regulation. They want to yeah. see it work. And daycares, is one, daycares are one of those places. Well, it's, because it becomes, it's a personal matter, but it also, this became a public health matter. So just think about it this way. The, the the province of Alberta had to set up special units for the, because of the number of children, I guess they were mostly children, who were hospitalized with this, which is a public cost. And this goes back to Walkerton, you know, and when you, you know, this whole uh, common sense approach to cutting red tape when you shouldn't be cutting red tape, which is in issues that can become public health matters. And I, so I think that that is at one end of this, absolutely for sure, that it's, if you cut public, if you cut red tape in areas where there should be enough people with enough credentials doing enough surveillance and enough communication so that the parents know what they need to do. A lot, a lot of alarm bells, a lot of wake up calls here. I think Martha, thank you so much. And thank you so much, Ben. <laughs> We spoke about this briefly last week with a member of Canada's, a Libyan-Canadian from Benghazi. I was mentioning that I'd once been to the city of Derna where that awful dam collapse, two dams collapsed, um, killing, we don't know how many people yet, but it looks to be uh, four to 11,000 people. The estimates are all over the place. It's very hard to figure out. They're still having trouble accessing this place way up in northeast Libya on the Mediterranean, almost just right across from uh, from Italy, right, or, or southern France, if you were to go across the Mediterranean. Um, but these two dams collapsed, right? The official death toll, as I mentioned, is varied. Uh, a UN official today, Georgette Gagno, says the level of destruction there is heartbreaking. I have been to Derna before. My last visit was three months ago. What I saw on Saturday defies comprehension. Parts of the city were barely recognizable, and those areas are now practically empty. People have either left or are dead. 
And all of this is down. First of all, there was a major tropical storm that rolled through uh, a Mediterranean cyclone that dropped up to 16 inches of rain over parts of Libya in just 24 hours. But it was the collapse of these two dams that really turned this into a catastrophe. And while the causes there in Derna, a city of about 100,000 people, are unique, this is also something that people are worried about elsewhere. First of all, you have in Libya specifically have a civil war that's still going on. Uh, This historic storm, obviously, uh, and neglected infrastructure. Now, these dams had been built in the 70s, but reportedly had not been maintained since 2002, and that's a long time, 21 years. Similar conditions are replicated in many other places worldwide. So, of course, in the aftermath of this catastrophe, there are a lot of calls out there for renewed attention to the international problem of how dams are aging globally, including here in North America. Uh, Dominda Pereira is a civil engineer and risk assessment researcher at the United Nations University Institute for Water, Environment and Health, which happens to be affiliated with McMaster University in Hamilton. He was the lead author on a 2021 study called Aging Water Storage Infrastructure, an Emerging Global Risk. And he joins me now. Uh, Dominda, thank you. Thank you, Ben. Thank you very much for having me today. This catastrophe in Libya, as as tragic as it is, is also uh, is also shining a bit of a spotlight on what may have been the cause and some of the issues that you pointed out in that study around aging infrastructure. Um, and this wasn't a very old; these weren't very old structures, by the way. I think they were built in the seventies. So this really highlights some of what you were trying to uh, raise raise alarms about a few years ago. Yeah, actually, uh, that's true. Like uh, in 2021, when we published uh, this report, also we got a lot of uh, kind of questions and a lot of uh, criticism again with uh, uh, mentioning that dams are not not that old. But actually now, after two years, we can see what happened. Like in in our study, we try to bring this uh, issue because uh, all over the world, there are maybe 100,000 dams, but... uh, uh, there are different uh, scale sizes of dams, but in our study, we mainly focus on large dams according to the definition of ICOL. Mm-hmm. In that uh, large dams also uh, in the world, we can say over uh, 58,000 dams. 50,000 uh, large ones? Yeah, because I, th- yeah, I think Canada has yeah. about 1,150. There yeah. are 50. Yeah. That's a lot. Of da- I mean, I guess what, you know, it, 50 years, it, it's it, the 70s was 50 years ago right now. So a lot of these dams were built in what I guess were, was sort of a golden age of infrastructure building, which is, is not recent. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That is right. Uh, and uh, in our analysis, we found most of these structures were built in 1960s, 70s. It is called as the golden era for dams. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, irrespective of the ge- geography, I think... Most of the continents have large dams, but uh, if I say like North America, Europe uh, have a lot of old dams relatively, and Asia and Africa have relatively young dams, and South America also relatively young dams. But uh, when we think about the age, actually, we did a very deep uh, kind of analysis to identify what is is the lower threshold of aging. And then uh, we found uh, we can reasonably say that 50 years is the lower bound of uh, uh, of a dam that it it, it starts to show that aging uh, symptoms. Right. So that's why we mentioned in our report that 50 years we picked as the lower bound of the aging uh, mark. So okay. even these dams in Libya that were built in the mid-70s had reached what you would consider at least the lower end of, of needing some some care, right? I mean, if you'd leave them be, and I gather 
these dams in, in, in Libya, and we'll find out more about it, but they hadn't been maintained in about 20 years at this point, that that's, that's a dangerous situation for a dam, even if it was built in the 70s. Exactly. Those dams, uh, I think one dam is 1973 and the other one 1976. That means they are 50 and 46 years old. And uh, <clears throat> that is the case. Like uh, even in the report, we mentioned age doesn't matter if you care the dam very careful. I mean, the in the, in kind of regular basis, if a dam uh, can be maintained and inspected regularly, still we can keep uh, this dam healthy for a long life. Like uh, even our statistics uh, show that there are some dams even 100 years old is still functioning well in some countries. The problem is how do you look after the dam? That This is a very good example that uh, even yesterday also when I searched about the Libya situation, I found that these two dams were not uh, maintained or inspected for nearly two decades. So then right. the, this kind of result is obvious. And this is not, I mean, Libya tragically has been the example that 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 proves what you were looking at two years ago. But there are no Libya is not alone, right? There are many other how how big a problem do you think this is worldwide now that a lot of these dams built as recently as the seventies are starting to sort of hit their age limits if they're not properly cared for? Exactly. Actually, um um not Libya is not an isolated situation. There are some uh, incidents. Uh, I think uh, most recent incident was not uh, like uh, I think Ukraine dam collapsed, but it is uh, not because of the extreme case, right. but extreme weather case. Sorry, like in uh, due to some uh, various uh, reasons like poor management. I think it start with the dam uh, design. Like uh, if the dam is poorly designed and poorly constructed, poorly managed, and uh, and there is a high possibility. Uh, to this kind of incidents. Uh, where the data I collected, I can say like in between nine, uh, 2015 and 2019, there are uh, about uh, 175 dam failure cases recorded in different wow. countries, in different scales. These dams either can be uh, water storage dams or tailing dams, including together. Uh, those kind of incidents are reported but uh, their scales are different but uh, not uh, catastrophic like the libya right. so far, and, i think it is the largest one in recent past and these dams just as a reminder these dams many of them are very important to the communities especially we see with with climate change not only are storms getting more intense so sometimes we see these more catastrophic dam failures the dams themselves are put under near, more pressure but the areas with where they are often the dams are very important when it comes to water distribution, water availability, and so on. Exactly, because dam, most of the dams are either single functions or multi-purposes. Like, uh, <clears throat> so it is a kind of a icon for the economy because uh, it provides uh, water for irrigation, energy, and flood control. Uh, those kind of lot of economical uh, benefits we can get from a dam. So losing a dam uh, itself is a big uh, impact to a country like uh, especially Libya, maybe they are located in Africa where the water is uh, very scarce thing. Mm -hmm. So in that case, yeah, I think uh, in any country, because on the other hand, these structures are not small ones. They they need a lot of investment. Those investment uh, are people's uh, money or it can be uh, some countries uh, construct these dam based on their loans or donations or funds. Uh, so this is huge infrastructure with huge investments uh, and huge benefit for the society. 
and the same time if we don't look after them carefully and the catastrophe is so very immense this is a tough one because you don't have a lot of options when it comes to these especially these dams that that are not aging well you can either spend all the money you have to to fix them which even the americans as rich a society as america is is having trouble doing you can decommission them but that has its own impacts to the communities around them and so on i mean this is a big problem yeah exactly i think uh, how to look after these aging infrastructures is a huge uh, burden for our economy and the society like uh, so far we identified three kind of alternatives one is as you mentioned it is decommissioning even in decommissioning we, we, there are several stages and reoperationalization that means we can uh, change the functions of the dam then uh, we can reuse it as for another purposes other one is total removal or the repair sorry repairing right so uh, the either either is uh, very costly i think uh, in north america and europe they are i think focusing more on dam removal as a full time uh, like a full scale dam, dam removal but still uh, these are focused more on small scale dams uh, i think for the large dams it's still removing a large dam also sometimes a huge cost and it, it needs a lot of time sometimes it can be years or decades Yeah, I mean we think of things like the Hoover Dam in the US. I think of Jay, you know, where I was growing up in Quebec in the 70s, there were all the big dam projects up in yeah. the north of Quebec for for hydro purposes. I mean, when we look at just North America, Canada I think has about 1157 large dams categorized according to the ICOL definition as you mentioned earlier. America yeah. has a ton of them as well. What's the situation here because we often think of Libya, you know, first of all we know the kind of political issues Libya has been having and okay, it, it makes sense perhaps that those two dams were ignored for too long. But what about what the situation here at home yeah actually in canada as you mentioned there are 1156 large dams according to icold and their age also average age is 55 years old okay and so that means uh, they are also passing the boundary line so and other thing is uh, the this climate change impact like extreme uh, weather events because we cannot predict them very very precisely it can happen to yesterday it was in libya tomorrow it can be in canada or who knows mm-hmm. like uh, and these severe weather events are highly unpredictable and uh, even uh, we can predict their impact is huge so in that case i think it is best time to prepare because we have uh, all dams here and uh, we know what, what are the consequences if they fails and then uh, i think uh, early preparedness is the best thing i think one one thing we can do is uh, proper maintaining and regular inspection and more than that uh, like development of early warning system because that is one of the uh, another thing we another alternative to minimize the this kind of effect i i i believe like if even libya they have kind of uh, early warning uh, kind of a protocol or the systems then this uh, disaster could have been minimized What should we be doing? Should we be identifying those most get, most at risk like the ones in Libya and then trying to find ways to make sure that those are the ones that we tackle first? Is it that is it that simple and 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 have the international community help countries that may not have the means themselves to do this because oftentimes, you know, the, you know, the, it was a global effort to get the things built in the first place and then we just sort of leave the countries to themselves with these structures that they often can't afford to maintain to some extent. actually you are hit the hit the point like that is the point like when we construct the dam i think lot of all the all the attention is there once it is constructed it is uh, the hosting country's responsibility to look after it 
So I think each dam is unique, like like human beings, because uh, one dam can uh, uh, function for hundred years, but other dam cannot even pass fifty years, like, like human beings, like because it it needs regular kind of uh, inspection, maintenance, repair, and attention. So this is a development issue because these dams store water for us, like uh, for it it covers. Uh, food security, energy security, and water security of a country. So uh, these structures are very, very important for the sustainable development. In that case, I think this this issue should be discussed in the global level and international community, including United Nations. And there should be a kind of global uh, kind of initiatives for these uh, to look after these structures. Well, Demetri Pereira, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. I think. Thank you. I remember being 17 years old, up for my first MTV award with Destiny's Child, and it was one of the most exciting moments in my life. So I'd like for Taylor to come out and have her moment. Where are you? What did you think when Beyonce said your name? Did you have any idea she was gonna do that? You know, they told me to be ready just in case just in case she might want to say something and it was just so wonderful and so incredibly classy of her and just gracious and wonderful to let me say something. She's a great person and I really look up to her. There you have it. Now that goes back a while to the 2009 MTV Music Awards when of course Taylor Swift was just starting out and Beyonce was already in many ways Queen B. It was already Beyonce and it was hard to think that you know, here we are in 2023, and the two of them uh, basically rule the world musically. At least with these two tours they've been on, Taylor Swift's in particular, but Beyonce's too, have just been monster money makers. And just as and beyond that, just very, very influential. That was back in 2009 when Taylor Swift won the award for best music video, and of course, the always uh, lovely Kanye West got up and sort of I don't know what he was talking. He made some noise and said that Beyonce should have won. So when Beyonce later won a different award, she brought Taylor Swift back on stage to enjoy her moment. And here they are. Where's Kanye? Uh, nowhere. And where are those two? Top of the world. And so wouldn't you know it, last week appears a job notice, unlike many job notices in journalism these days, of which there are not many, but not many get much notice at all. This one got a ton of notice. Um, the biggest newspaper chain in the U.S., uh, Gannett, is hiring, first announced they were hiring a Taylor Swift reporter. And then soon after decided, I guess they got a bit of a backlash on that one, said they would also hire a Beyonce reporter. So there are two job listings out there, one for Taylor Swift reporter, another one for a Beyonce Knowles uh, Carter reporter. Um, the company owns more than 200 daily newspapers. You probably know the big one, USA Today, of course. They do lots of other stuff. Um, so what exactly and, – and they're coming under fire for this, by the way, because – They've been like many newspaper organizations. There have been huge layoffs at the company of late. I think their workforce shrunk by forty-seven percent in the last three years due to layoffs and attrition. But somehow this this feels like a good idea. So we thought, well, what would motivate a company like that to go out and hire two reporters to do those sorts of beats? What will they deliver? What are they expected to deliver? Not an easy job covering those two, because needless to say access to them, how what's put out, stories that get, get out there about them are usually pretty, 
pretty well guarded, right? Uh, Eric Grody is director of the Gold Ring Arts, Journalism, and Communications Program at Syracuse University in Syracuse, New York. Uh, Eric, Syracuse, you're honor almost, well, you're honorary Canadian just about. Yes, very close. I was just up at Niagara-on-the-Lake a few weeks ago and was there in about an hour. There you go. Well, one thing that unites both sides of the border these days is this fascination with with mega stars, and there aren't two bigger stars out there right now than Taylor Swift and Beyonce. Um, and I haven't seen anyone discuss a journalism role like this in a very long time. What do you make of it to be the on the Beyonce beat or the Swift beat? It sounds like a sounds like quite the opportunity. It doesn't like quite the opportunity, it's, and it is unusual. I mean, as I was trying to think about precedent for this, you know, obviously politicians will have dedicated pool reporters. Um, you know, I think in sports you do see, for example, here in the States, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is a smallish market, um, has a massive uh, press pool following the Milwaukee Bucks because right. of Giannis and mm-hmm. Antonio- um, and so are they specifically dedicated to him? Eh, not necessarily, but I mean, there are certain personalities that just do command and demand a certain amount of uh, press attention. Yeah. And again, I mean, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with getting people talking, right? And that's always, especially these days when it comes to journalism jobs, there aren't many that people talk about much. But Gannett is a strange is a strange beast to be putting this forward because They've been come, the company itself has come under a lot of attack recently for just how many jobs it's shed uh, before sort of coming to the table with this one. Yeah, I mean, there has been a bit of a bloodletting uh, throughout the journalism industry, but uh, Gannett is by no means immune. I, I, I saw somewhere, I mean, six or seven percent of its overall reporting staff over the last few years. Yeah, it's a big number, and and mostly at their local papers too, for which they were quite well known. I think if you're if you're not from the U.S., you probably know USA Today for sure. But but uh, Gannett has been mostly known for their local reporting, which is we know is struggling on both sides of the border. Yeah, and and Gannett again, I can only speak for here in the states, but uh, there'll be a lot of partnerships they'll have where the USA Today content will make its way into this local paper and vice versa. And it, it is it, it has seemed like a, a decent model to to have national attention while also being able to localize stories that have national significance. Um, and so on, on paper, it seems to work well, but I, I understand it can also uh, set a pretty unhealthy precedent. Yeah. Tell me what, what I mean, this is a, what exactly do you think, I was trying to think about it as well, what exactly would a Taylor Swift correspondent and the Beyonce bureau chief, what would they do every day? Because if you look at both of them, one of the reasons that they're so absolutely successful is just how carefully their public image has been curated by them, by the way. So there's not a lot of, I don't see a lot of, um, a lot of doors opening there to get in and get good stories. Well, yeah, that is a good question. I mean, the, you know, in, in both cases, they tour extensively. And I believe this started because uh, Gannett was advertising for someone to be following Taylor Swift on her European leg of her tour. Um, so you're going to, you know, different cities around the world. Theoretically, that could lead to all kinds of things. But as you point out, these are two very um, managed uh, personalities who, you know, I believe the, the shows themselves look very, very similar from night to night, no matter where you are. Um, and these are two women who, you know, have learned, sometimes learned the hard way to um, withstand and try to push back on a certain level of scrutiny. So in terms of what these journalists will do, I mean, I think there can be a great opportunity for two reporters here provided they have the wherewithal and the corporate backing 
to actually do some reporting, to talk about all the different issues and concepts and ideas that come up when people are talking about two very powerful, very influential women like these two we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, together, these concert tours and Taylor Swift specifically, but Beyonce's not far behind. I mean, they've shifted American GDP this year. I mean, it's, 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 I was thinking, why, why don't they have an Elon Musk reporter? Because he seems to have, there seems to be more going on there. But at the same time, if you were to think of two people who, who can move mountains uh, out there, Taylor Swift and Beyonce, uh, uh, Carter Knowles or Knowles Carter are, are right there. They're right there, aren't they? I mean, they are, in some ways, they are worthy of their own dedicated little pack. Well, and when you talk about moving mountains, uh, you know, Taylor Swift triggered an earthquake in in Seattle. The, yes. the, the crowd was so raucous. I mean, it reached the seismograph at earthquake levels of uh, I mean, so these, these are <laughs> seismic effects of these of these two performers. So when you look at something, an idea like this, do you think this is something it feels very social media driven, right? I mean, these are clearly two artists that get a lot of engagement. Uh, they get a lot of clicks. If you come up with an interesting news story about either one of them, you're gonna it's going to be consumed. Uh, it feels like this is sort of, um, again, not to contradict what I just said about how how powerful both the, both these women are, but at the same time, these are also people that people want to read about. So you're essentially giving the audience what it wants, not the other way around. True, true. And, and a lot of what I think will be brought to bear on this is there would be very lazy, bad ways to report on these two women and really useful, powerful ways to, to write about them. I mean, if you're just tagging along and gushing about this great concert and talking to eight or 10 Swifties or talking to members of the Bayhive and as a gush and rave, um, you know, the ceiling is kind of low in terms of what a news outlet or a reader will get out of that. Um, but both of these women have done fascinating things. You know, what what Taylor Swift is doing now with re-recording all her material to for economically advantageous ways um, is kind of unprecedented. I mean, there's a lot to write about with both of these women. And um, I hope and I like to think that Gannett will... Um, provide these reporters with with an outlet to really do the work and 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 report the kinds of stories that you don't just see all over social media but to actually drive the conversation what are some of the stories when you look i mean i can think of a few but what are some of the stories that you would like to read about either one of these very much reported on although not always with much depth but these two are very influential people right now forget artists people sure well i mean Beyonce, for example, you know, has uh, her her stage shows are are incredible, um, and they have a lot of callbacks. They 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 reference um, HBCUs. They reference um, major parts of of black, not just popular culture, but but sort of slightly more esoteric, like some of Julie Dash's films or um, some some rather out there visual artists. Mm-hmm. You know, someone who could look at her work and and find those antecedents not just oh look i spotted you know her bashing a car windows with a bat that looks like this one artist but you know why you're using those uh predecessors to say what you want to say and take it through this new lens as a black woman in america what you know what are you trying to say that hasn't been said or hasn't been able to be said before yeah. You know what it reminded me of? I mean, I worked in, I was based in in, uh, in Britain for quite a while. Is I mean, essentially, they're going to end up being somewhat like royal correspondents, right? And, and there are two kinds, really two kinds of royal correspondents. There are those who peddle the gossip, which is 
very, very popular, by the way. And there are those who sort of dig into the greater meaning of what is the royal family and why is it here and what does it serve and how does it work? And so there, there are many, much like the royal family in the UK, there are many different ways to report someone as famous and as influential as, say, Taylor Swift. And I'm guessing, I mean, you'd know far better than I, but I'm guessing some of these royal correspondents in terms of the access they would get and the access- Oh, none. Zero, zero. Like, I doubt they've, they barely ever met a royal, right? I mean, it's just all, it's like watching, it's like watching the balcony at the Kremlin back in the day, you know? <laughs> so, so what you do then is who, who do you talk to? Who can you find who, you know, again, these, these are very well-trod paths in terms of lots of reporters sniffing around and, and trying to get information. Um so, you know, the reporters they hire, and I'm sure we were talking about this earlier, I'm sure there are a lot of resumes crossing Gannett's desk right now. <laughs> I'm sure, um, yes. But I mean, I'd like to think they will hire two people who are very, you know, capable, competent, skilled at the writing, but also the reporting and then finding things that are out there worth writing about. Eric, when you look at this as a trend, and I don't know, I mean, Elon Musk comes to mind. I don't know how many other people there are out there of, of the caliber of a Taylor Swift or a Beyonce that would have as much demand for information about them. Uh, but is this something, given the way that social media and clicks and engagement works, you would think that instead of, you'd think that there would be more of these sorts of positions out there for very well-known, I mean, Clearly, they have a music. They have music journalists there who cover a lot of this stuff. But the idea of focusing on the mega stars of the day and focusing the atten entire attention of one uh, journalist on them seems like not a terrible. I mean, people were kind of scoffing at it at first, but it doesn't seem like a terrible idea given the economics of journalism right now. I think you're right. I mean, and and this is the kind of thing that we, well, whether you or I know. I mean, Gannett will will know very quickly just what their return on investment is on this. I mean, they'll see the the metrics and they'll see how many clicks and reads and eyeballs these stories are getting, which I suspect will be a, a very, very high number. Um, I mean, it already, the, the day began, what was it, Thursday, Friday, with Gannett announcing this Taylor Swift uh, beat. And then it was just a few hours later that Beyonce entered the scene for any number of reasons, I think part was the optics of people saying like, uh, you know, there are a lot of very accomplished musicians and performers out there and they're not all white women, frankly, um, which is how the, I believe the conversation expanded to have both of these women, which it should have been in the first place. Um, but once you, so you've already made that leap from one name to two names. And as you point out with Musk and, and many others, um, you know, there are a lot of people out there who people are very keen to read about. I'd be curious on your thoughts about this. Do you think if you're Taylor Swift's PR team and Beyonce's PR team, of which I'm sure they're quite quite numerous, are you happy or sad about this announcement? Huh. That's a good question. Um, I mean, it's flattering, obviously, to know that someone, a company cares enough about you to, you know, dedicate a person solely to your person. Um, you know, I think they would probably be open to the idea of a, of a, of a sympathetic reporter and would probably take the steps that PR people do to try to boost the odds of, of sympathy. Um, but I think they'll keep a close eye on what this coverage is and, uh, you know, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Um, you know, I think they, in theory, they could be excited about this. I think that could also curdle very quickly. Yes, as in Britain, where, you know, they, there are no holds barred when it comes to some of the reporting they do on the royal family. Eric, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.